Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Awesome Algo podcast. And today's guest is James Bailey. He is a chief operational officer from a company called Subquery. And we are going to talk about Subquery Network today, which is essentially a decentralized indexer service that works with different chains and simplifies development of decentralized applications by a great extent and as always as a preface for the episode i did my diligence by going over the code base of the project and trying some hands-on guides on it and we will see how deep we will dive in regards to technical details but i believe it would be nice to also cover it from a higher level standpoint because there's a lot of interesting notes and details on there and with that i would like to start with with you james if you could Tell to myself and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your academic background and how you first got introduced into the field of engineering. Yeah, thanks, Al. Thanks very much for having me on this this podcast of yours. It's, it's great to be here and it's great to be talking to the communities in our grant. Some background about me, I guess, to start with. Ooh, I think like many people in this industry, I started as a software developer many years ago. I studied software development at university. And graduated there and went and worked in various software jobs. I found my way into a bit of product management. And then where I am now was leading the operations side of Subquery. I joined Subquery initially about two years ago to lead their business development side. And which is strange when people ask about it, because what's the software engineer doing in business development? That's the wrong type of development, really, isn't it? But what you do find when you do product management is the way that product managers operate in a, on, a, on this kind of idea of figuring out what the most value is and building products that provide that value. So when you're a software, when you're a product manager, you're always thinking about what products you can build that brings value to your customers. And it's actually not that different when you're assigned to sell those products to your customers rather than internally trying to sell your team in an idea, which is what product management's about, selling your team that we should start, we should invest in building this. Uh, business development is about selling to another third party that they should invest in you. So it's a very similar approach of just coming forth with values. But anyway, that's a kind of a long way to describe that. I've had a bit of a weird, windy path to crypto. I, um, I've jumped around a lot of startups in the traditional industries as well as corporates. I feel like every three or four years, I forget how much I hate corporate life. And I make the ultimate error of going back into a corporate. It lasts about 10 months before I get churned out because I'm just, it's so too, it's too slow. Yeah, it could be draining experience long-term. It's nice if you want to take things slowly, but I think most of us in crypto, we like to run. So it's not really the place for us in the corporate world, but I've been involved with Subquery for two years and it's been a wonderful time here. Subquery is not actually my first crypto job. I had a job back in 2018 in the last boom, and that was for a messaging app. I don't many years ago and it's interesting seeing the difference and there's a lot of cycles in crypto and i was involved in the last cycle before the one that's just finished and jumped out for a bit between the two and came back because i think what attracts me is and this is probably the same for many other developers out there is that as a software developer there's only two leading edges of software development one of those is ai and the other one is crypto or blockchain and I think it's what attracts everyone into the space is that we're building brand new stuff 
and it's really cool. It's also got a lot of challenges, a lot of constraints, te- technical hurdles, but as well as process and kind of customer hurdles. And those challenges pose will provide the environment that becomes quite interesting. It attracts a lot of us into the space, which is great. Interesting. There was a nice insight in the previous episode from Aaron from Atlantic and the fact that there's roughly around 200,000 engineers in total in the entire blockchain space right now. And then considering the fact how many projects within the blockchain space in general, it's just highly competitive space. And a lot of projects come to the same issue with adoption. How do we ensure that our network is going to be the one? But I believe the recent tendencies are showing that the future is probably going to be a bet on cross-chain technologies and cooperation rather than competition. That's right. Back to your point around there's only so many thousand engineers in the space. It is very small still. And I still explain to my friends that I'm in blockchain and they go, wow, what? It's a bit of an odd one. But I think what's really surprising or concerning, however you think of it, is there may be thousands of engineers, but the number of like operations, marketing, customer success, like the non-technical people that we need to run these businesses, it's even less so. It's in fact, it's critically short in those spaces. The number of people that compete over a very good marketing or BD person in crypto is huge. They might not be earning this kind of salaries that a Rust developer is, I was talking to a recruiter a while ago and they're saying that they were some there were some salaries going around for 700k per year for a Rust developer, which is insane. But we're just as short in kind of the marketing and the BD side of things as well. And I think partly because crypto has looked at this, it's kind of perceived by many in those industries as this impenetrable technology crazed world or industry that is dominated by crypto bros and is somewhat toxic. And I think as part of all of our jobs in the space, because if we want to move on and grow up from being a project to being a business, we do need the non-developers to kind of lead us or give us experience or insights into things that we don't know as much as we do about developing the next protocol. That's, I think, a big step that we need to take in the next cycle is making this industry more accessible for those types of people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I believe the uh, the things that you're mentioning in regards to accessibility of the projects, like at the moment, I, it really feels like just being a byproduct of the fact that it's a highly competitive space and people are trying to raise funds and money. And this implies stricter deadlines and you have to innovate and implement faster. But yeah, I certainly agree with your point on that, that things like accessibility and making it more available for any anyone, because right now, a lot of FI systems and protocols still imply a certain level of experience with these tools. But yeah, only time, I believe, will eventually slow down this this whole cycle of fast uh, paced iterations and uh, we will start seeing great access accessible tools and uh, tools that are easily consumed by anyone and don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with this fast pace of development there's a point in the life cycle of any startup when they kind of transition to a scale up yeah and that poses a whole nother set of challenges where you can't develop your way out of it you may have the best technology you may have the fastest protocol you might have the most optimum bit of code but if your grandma can uh, use it, then what's the point? Exactly. <laughs> if you don't have the community, if you don't have the accessibility, if you don't have people using it, if you don't have people, if you don't have like streamlined operations so you can get revenue from it, if you don't have 
good budgeting so you're not blowing through your budget. There's all these other, it's like the great filter of startups. Yeah. And you mentioned something about Rust and just an off-topic now because it's a question I try to ask to a lot of guests who come from the engineering background. Any chance you can tell us a bit about your first programming language or maybe your first favorite programming language that you got your hands on? <laughs> I think that many people in my generation, the first programming language is Rust. Not Rust, sorry. <laughs> sorry, not Rust. Python, which was lovely at the time. Look, I've got that view on programming languages that used to are extremely eloquent languages and beautiful ones that are much faster and performant and then superior in every way like rust but unfortunately for humans we are creatures of habit and familiarity and so languages like javascript they're not going anywhere there's a certain kind of appeal that when you write something in typescript or javascript 99% of all coding of coders around the world can understand it. And that goes back to the accessibility piece. Yeah, I've got some thoughts on these coding languages, but it, I don't think it matters as much as what you build with it and who your target is. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's just a tool that you need to choose wisely depending on your requirements. Exactly. All right. I think this was a great set of insights about your biography. And I believe the main part of the episode today would be the discussion and deep dive around the subquery project. So I would like to slowly transition into that part. And if you could tell us a little bit about what subquery is, the company, and of course, the network, the product of the company. And if there is any generic terminology that is specific to Web3 space, I would really love for you to define the terminology as well, just to clear out any confusion in case there is some hearing folks listening to this who are not uh, versed with the Web3. Yeah. So when I start with explaining what the, pro or the problem that subquery solves, and we can kind of talk about what subquery is, because engineers might get this straight away, but it's one of those kind of next level down tools that the average person might not understand clearly. But blockchain is an incredible technology that has the potential of revolutionizing our industry with it in a trustless and more equitable way, okay? But blockchain does actually have a core weakness. And that weakness relates to the way it stores data. Blockchains store that data in a way that makes it terrible um, to access. So whenever you want to read off a blockchain and use that data that's already stored on the chain, it's in a very inefficient format. It's a terrible way to do it. And if we want to build amazing applications that are really intuitive, that allow the next billion users to enter blockchain and use it, we need to build applications that uh, easy to use and accessible. So they need to be able to retrieve data from a blockchain faster and more efficiently. So how is blockchain storing data? So imagine a book and each book, this is a magic book. Each one or every node runner around the world runs a or has a magic book. And every X seconds, a page is written to that book with a small amount of text explaining what's happened in the last you know, eight seconds. So that's like a new block is added to the chain. So you can imagine blocks being added to the chain, like pages being written to a book. But when you're retrieving data from a blockchain, you can only read and analyze one page at a time. When you're looking at a book, you can only scan one page at a time. And to answer simple questions like, what were the last 10 transactions I made? Or 
what were the last, you know, what the last 10 owners of this NFT, uh, especially historical questions like that, you can't really ask that book. You can't ask the book, like, what was the last 10 pages this character appeared on, just so you can't ask blockchain that. It's not really designed to answer those questions. And the only way to do that right now is to read each and every page, to scan every block, to look for the last 10 transactions, which takes a long time, will take hours, depending on how long the chain is. So right now, application developers are forced to work this way with blockchain data. But we can't build these next generation of applications with tools like that. We need something better. And that is what subquery is designed to solve. Subquery is an indexer. And what an indexer is essentially a process to scan, analyze, organize, and store information from the chain. So a subquery project is a self-contained project that will look for a blockchain and will pull off everything that you want to know about it and store it in a more performant way. And that more performant way is like, as in a database, which is equivalent to bringing it in an Excel spreadsheet. You can sort the spreadsheet, you can filter it, you can make pivot tables, you can do a lot more with it. Um, we're taking data from this book and putting it into a spreadsheet. And we build subquery as a tool. It's a very open tool. And we build it with four things in mind. First, it's got to be as fast as possible. Our solution is fast to set up, it's fast to configure, um, and it's fast to index. It will scan a blockchain in minutes. It can scan the Algorand blockchain, depending on what you're indexing, very quickly. And we have a lot of benefits sort of baked in to optimize its scan speed to make it as fast as possible and to save developers time when they build an application. Secondly, it's flexible. Subquery is a kind of a scaffold for building your custom API. Your custom API is the, the way you retrieve data from the blockchain. And so you can index, transform, and query data to whatever you want. If you want to query just data related to your asset or your application, you can filter just to that. Thirdly, it's open. Subquery is open. It's open source, meaning that you can do whatever you want from it. It's free forever. You can extend it. You can improve it. You can run it in your own environment. It's fine. And finally, it's universal. We've engineered it to work across many different layer ones. So we are currently working on different blockchains around the space, including Algorand, which means that if you're a developer building an Algorand that wants to expand your idea to other chains, which is quite popular these days, we can be there to help you. It's a universal infrastructure stack that brings communities together. So that's why, that's what our, some subqueries are designed to solve. That's what it is in a high-level way. And this is how we design it to, to be better than the existing solutions. Awesome. This is very interesting use case. And I believe you guys found a really nice application into it because as mentioned in the beginning of the episode it really is um, something that a lot of developers and, and just speaking from my own experience dealing with for example algorand network algorand has a i would say by default you know out of the box the algorand indexer provides a really nice set of points that allow you to do a lot but it's still not a universal set of endpoints you can just tailor it for your individual That's personal exactly needs right. and it's it, not it, flexible 
and a lot of different so it indexes everything and you're limited to what it indexes which i guess it indexes everything but it doesn't index this index stuff specifically to your way so for example if exactly. you're building an nft marketplace and you just want to keep track of nfts that have been minted by your application and yeah. you don't want to keep track of certain things about that then that the algo the default algorithm index won't really help you with that yeah much more specific and much more tailored for customers and speaking on that note about Algorand, before we talk a little, because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts and notes on what was the sort of prominent details or decision-making behind deciding to add Algorand as the next integration that Subquery would support. Before that, any chance you could also run down a little bit on the history of the different chains you guys integrated and what was the sort of decision-making behind adding them. And I guess we could start with chains like Polkadot and... Uh... Yeah, we started in Polkadot. We started, Subquery began back in almost two years ago, slightly over two years ago now. And since then, we've come a long way. We started in Polkadot. Now, Polkadot, for those who don't know, is a, a chain built on a language called Substrate. You might have heard of Polkadot Kusama. And it's one of those newer generation three blockchains, just like Algorand. It's got many parachains, which are like sub-chains that we also support. We then moved to Avalanche, um, which of course everyone knows about. Avalanche is an Ethereum-based chain or has a kind of a very similar ABM. We then moved to Cosmos, which like Polkadot has got this multi-chain view, different Cosmos zones. That's non-ETH. That's another Generation 3 blockchain. And then finally, we moved to Algorand. And it won't be the last. It wasn't the first, and it certainly won't be the last chain that we support. Essentially, our strategy is to look for advanced generation three blockchains. Now, if we like plot the history of chains, you have generation one, which is Bitcoin, kind of Ethereum is what we call generation two, where it's, there's these smart contracts and the way you can build applications on them. And I like to classify generation three as anything that's proof of stake because it's just a much more smarter way of doing things. But you also have a bit more benefits around performance. Now, what drew us to Algorand? There is a huge developer ecosystem in Algorand. And since we announced support, even just a couple of weeks ago, the number of teams reaching out to us is huge. The number of teams building amazing applications and DeFi, gaming, and many other different like verticals in Algorand. We like that Algorand is very performant. There's lots of data on chain, a lot of transactions that are happening. It's designed to support very high TPS with very low fees making it a perfect candidate for where you might want to build an adapt and it's very similar to the kind of things we've done before right so it wasn't that hard to add support for when we add support for algorand we allow you to index any different block so you can just index the raw blocks whatever every single block you might want to do something or you can index specific transactions and you can filter these transactions to look for transactions to or from a certain account or you can look at transactions involving certain assets or even transactions involving certain apps. So you can do a lot to filter these different transactions down to what you need and what you want. And you're free to index that data however you want. So yeah, there's a lot of, lot of small things. And that, I guess that's why we're keen to move to Algorand because we quite like seeing the number of teams working on it. And we have this hypothesis, which is rather than most teams will go and support ethereum which again ethereum is a fantastic network and with proof of stake upgrade very recently it's quite it's it's broken your ground and it should be 
It's good not to have to explain away the environmental impacts of blockchains. I'm sick of the average people harassing me about blockchains being incredibly environmentally inefficient. Lots of stigmas around. Yeah. Lots of stigmas around proof of work. But that's a lot of teams will go straight to Ethereum, and we have this idea which is skate to where the puck will be, which is skate try to add support in advance to where we think developers we're going to next, and we think developers we are drawn to these kind of ecosystems just like our grand. I see. And uh, yeah, in case you, uh, sorry, this is off topic. I'll cut it from the episode. In case you see the little notification, I'll get rid of it. Feel free to ignore it. So proceed with the next part. I guess it would be nice to just briefly cover a little bit for the engineers out there on um, on the architecture of the subquery. From my side, I could add a few notes that you guys have a wonderful set of guidelines called Subquery Academy and I had a brief exposure into it and I mostly went over the Algorand integration part and yeah, it's a, it's a very easy to set up tutorial. There is a scaffolding that essentially expands the little starter project for you. All you need for it is essentially Node and Docker Compose and yeah, you can run your own Subquery indexer locally to play around with it. And I also yeah. like the way you guys utilize GraphQL. It's a uh, a very nice integration and usage there. But that's very much by design, right? So I said at the start here that making things accessible was really important. And for us, making the documentation as clear and easy as easy to follow as possible was really important. So we build a tool. That's all we build. We don't build the data sets that, that get indexed by our tool. We don't maintain data sets that many apart from what our customers ask us to maintain. We just focus on building the tool, the indexer and adding features to that tool. So for us, if our customers find it hard to understand or to use or to run the tool, it means that we've failed. We are only successful for as long as our customers decide to use our tool. So that's our entire focus. And that's why documentation and getting started guides, the ones you mentioned, are so critically important for teams like us. Without them, it becomes a lot harder to start these new tools. I don't know about you, but have you ever used like a some weird library somewhere and there's no documentation and it's just a pain in the ass to get started? Um, no, of course. Possible. It's, I believe, something that you stumble upon at least once in your lifetime if you deal with engineering. So we've always made that promise that we'll never have that situation. And that's great to hear that you found documentation easy to do. In terms of the GraphQL, you're right. Like we, it was a very conscious decision. And part of that is a flexible index. You can index whatever you want. And some customers of ours, when you run this indexer, it spins up three subcomponents. It spins up an indexer, which connects to a chain node and processes blocks and stores that data, the resulting data in a Postgres database. And then it spins up a query service, which maps that Postgres database to a API. And that's a GraphQL API because the schema in your database is flexible. You can decide that yourself. So the GraphQL endpoint allows us to map any a schema to this API endpoint. In terms of, as I said before, it's open. So some customers who aren't familiar with GraphQL and quite like their REST APIs, which many people do, they've actually put a REST API server on top of our database, and that works fine as well. Talking talking about the usage of subquery, there's one particular thing that uh, 
Algorand Indexer by default doesn't support, and I believe there, uh, I'm pretty sure there will be teams in the Algorand ecosystem that might implement something like that would run on subquery. And uh, I'm talking about an ability to pull all transactions within the group if you have the group ID. And for some reason it's currently not supported. Perhaps it would be added by the Algorand team, but this is something that um, some folks could essentially set up with a really low main maintenance, low effort scenario. But uh, let's proceed with... And you can also add like on-chain requests while you're running this. So for yeah. example, if you encounter a transaction that you find interesting, you could do an on-chain query and then just retrieve everything around that. Or you could even, if you want, if you, for example, want to index things like you ex like receive a transaction and you want to get the current like fiat value of that transaction, you could do an off-chain courage like coin gecko to get the mm -hmm. current price of the asset at the time that was indexed and record that as well so it's flexible that's the main yeah. thing whatever you want there and i'm curious if you could also talk a little bit about an overview of some key features of the subquery network and especially what makes it what makes it special i believe there is in Algorand, at least in Algorand ecosystem, I don't think there is any products in that category, but would you say that it's something that, are there any other projects in other chains from which you may have taken some inspiration or I'm just curious on the novelty of the idea, were there any other folks, perhaps in Ethereum ecosystem who were thinking about similar edge cases or um, yeah, would be yeah. curious to hear your note on it. Yeah, so there, there are three main products that we built at Subquery. There's the SDK, this open source SDK that you can use to index and you can run it yourself. And it's open source, it's written in, in TypeScript, it's very easy to use, the documentation's all there. You can run that yourself as you can, but like every other open source company, we, we have a revenue model where we provide a hosted service or a managed service. So you can give us your Subquery project and we will run that and maintain that for you. And infrastructure in AWS. We'll run it for very high reliability. We'll give you a public endpoint. It's just all running in our infrastructure. It means that you can sleep easy knowing that you don't have to worry about running production servers because if you've ever done production DevOps, you'll know that it's a pain in the ass. It's one of those things that you don't want to do if you have to. So that's hosted service and SDK. Um, one of the problems with crypto, and this is a broader issue, which I'm sure everyone's familiar about, is that there are many centralized services that, that decentralized applications rely on. And it's kind of a dirty secret of the blockchain, is that we're still very early in the technology stack, and a lot of the stuff that we rely on is centralized, whether it's centralized infrastructure providers like Infura or Alchemy, or centralized data providers like Subquery. And that's what brings us to build the network is to resolve that issue. Now, the network is designed to be a way that you can run any subquery project from any of our chains in a decentralized way. And that, what that means is that you can give your written subquery project and your subquery project is basically like a recipe. It's a recipe for how to index data. Take data from this chain, look for this bit of information from it, process it according to this pipeline and save it in this format. And you can give that recipe or that subquery project to any other index around the world who you don't know and you don't trust, you don't have to know, and they can index that data for you in a decentralized way. And you can have multiple people around the world doing this, so it's redundant, which ultimately provides you better performance, better uptime, better reliability, 
all the benefits of decentralization. So we're building that network and that network is designed to facilitate that where anyone can publish that project. People can index it. They can be indexes. They can sell that data to consumers. Consumers can pay for that data using subquery tokens and the indexes will be rewarded in subquery tokens. And then the average person that holds subquery tokens can also act as delegators. Now you're asked in the end, like, is there another provider doing this? There are many other indexes around different ecosystems, but some of them are quite similar. But the one big one that many tens have heard about is called the graph. Now the graph is huge on Ethereum and a few other ETHLAD twos. They're one of the, the big daddies of decentralized protocols out there. And they're a, they are a formidable team and an excellently run team. We started working two years ago at while the graph was there because a lot of the teams were asking us to build an index like the graph on Polkadot. And the graph, although they announced they support Polkadot, they never quite got there. We carried on and built that and on the way have added support for these other networks like Algorand that doesn't have support from the graph because there are developers there that, that need indexing. We do it in a very similar way. We've intentionally designed it to be quite similar. But there are some notable differences, and we try to add more features. Many of the differences relate to the network, the plan of our decentralized network. The graphs network is running right now. In our network, we've just finished a test net. We had about 2,000 indexes in the test net, which is huge. Imagine having 2,000 validators in your test net. That's a large number of node runners. We've got a few differences, mainly around payment methods. Many other infrastructure providers and decentralized services they rely on a transactional model of payment where you pay per request. And if you think around the world today to all the internet services that you pay for, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, the TV you, you enjoy, how many of those service providers do you pay per music or song or, or TV episode? Like the last time we did it was like the iTunes store. Everything these days is like subscription-based and there's a reason for that. There's like certainty on both sides, how much it's going to cost. So I, as a consumer, know that it's going to cost me $19.95 a month. And the provider knows that this many consumers paying this many plans is going to earn a pretty steady revenue. So as a business, you can plan around it. And so we think it's quite a, in order to allow as many people to migrate into this decentralized way, we need to provide these sorts of payment models that, that are familiar and that are comfortable for a business to adopt. And subscription-based pricing is one of those. So the subquery network will allow transactional pricing, obviously, but also it will allow you to say to an indexer, I'll buy up to a million requests from you per week if you can give me that and I'll pay you 20 subquery tokens per week for that. And there's certainty there, knowledge, there's certainty. Rather than paying 0.0005 subquery tokens per request, you know how much it's going to cost you. So it's better for modeling. So there's a pieces on the payment side that we're doing. We've also taken a different hypothetical kind of approach here where we've built the network so it works with every chain that we support. So you and our test net, we had an Avalanche project, a Polkadot project, and a Cosmos project running side by side in our decentralized network. And we've done some other minor changes to remove a few participants, curators. So yeah, just some various differences, but there are like, just to be very clear here, like data industry is huge. 
So you look at the Goliaths of Web2, the Facebooks, Google, they have succeeded on the way that they can harness and utilize and collect data. And we think that Web3 will be no different. The top companies will succeed in terms of how they manage data. We just want to build the best tool to help them with that. Now, it won't be used to spying on you, but it'll be used to building really cool apps, which is the difference between Web2 and Web3. But we believe ultimately that there'll be many different, there'll be plenty of space because it's a problem that every team has, every app developer has. There'll be plenty of space for different providers like the graph and subquery to operate in the same place. I see. There is a very interesting point that you've mentioned in regards to the subquery tool and the ways you guys incentivize it. I was curious if you also consider it any scenarios and perhaps it's something that is already available on subquery, but there could be a lot of cases when uh, the developers building the APIs are not just interested in tailoring an indexer for their own needs, but perhaps providing some sub-generic API for a specific domain within within their chain that they would like to monetize or just uh, you don't really want to write an app for it, a, a target group of users who might benefit from that API. So they write yeah. the subquery for it and they host it. Have you is, is it something that very currently supports, for example, an ability? Like you don't have to be the consumer of the data to to write a subquery project and build and run it or submit it to this network. I do imagine there'd be lots of people, and we already have a small team in our Discord of people that like we go to a customer and they'll say, "Look, we need to build this data source. We don't have the expertise to do it in house. Can we pay you?" And we go and then pay our community to, as a bounty to go and build this data set for them. So I definitely imagine that, that will be the case. And there's a lot of provider data providers out there. When you talk about data indexes, a lot of people, there's two sub-genres of data indexes. There's open ones and flexible ones like us in the graph, where it's, you can index whatever the hell you want. And there are more standardized ones like Covalent, Chainalysis, and a few others that provide a common API of like the key information for different chains. And they've shown that business model works. So I definitely imagine that some people will be able to go and use subquery to build competitors to them. Also, for a different this is a network. amazing use case for it as well. This kind of reminded me this chain called the Singularity Net. I believe it's it's not really related to APIs, but they use blockchain to have a marketplace of AI services where people can basically pay a little subscription. And it's amazing that you guys do something similar with the. Uh, provides the visibility to monetize on the APIs that you write for some domain of users or domain of applications. And as we approach our final parts of this section too, is there any interesting cases of relying on any Algorand L1 features aside from things like Algot and Indexer, or it's mostly work around essentially operating with the existing Indexer capabilities and trying to adjusted for the needs that user specifies and the mappings so we don't use the existing indexer all we need to work as subquery is access to a reliable high performance archive node and it shows the maturity of algorand that there are there are four providers already that run these archives like rpc endpoints like pure stakes one of them algo indexer by algo explorer um, is another one 
and I can't recall the other two, but it shows the maturity of the ecosystem. Like I've been into other ones like Cosmos where there's no kind of established enterprise level providers of these RPC archive nodes. We don't use Indexer. All we do is basically when you design a subquery project, you like list out the different transaction types you want to subscribe to. We build a pre-computed cache of the location of all of these transaction types. So we know, for example, that there's a block that includes a transaction from this address to this address here. And then your subquery project will find that out and it will go and retrieve that entire block from the RPC endpoint and process that transaction from that block as designed. So we essentially build it as atomically as possible, as self-contained as possible. So you can swap out the RPC endpoint and it'll still work as well, same way. It doesn't, it's not dependent on anything apart from that RPC provider and it works without relying on third-party packages. Obviously, we bring some types in from our grant, but like, we don't bring in the indexer, um, the existing algorand indexer at the moment. I see. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe, and I'm sure you're aware of that as well, but uh, I believe if you host and run your own node, there's also an ability to, if you host your own indexer, basically, there's also an ability to just basically get direct access to the Postgres that powers the indexer. So there are applications yeah. of that as well, and people basically expand the existing APIs on that. But uh, RPC is certainly a way to go in this case, I believe. All right. Perhaps there's any interesting, notable challenges that you guys faced from the engineering side of things when implementing the platform. Like when dealing with, you can imagine the complexity of just getting familiar with different ecosystems, different ideologies of, of projects. And how do you guys deal with that? And are there any notable challenges that you faced over the past two years? Yeah. As we add more chains, it does actually get quite confusing like you kind of have a call with someone from Polkadot in the morning and then the next you have a call with someone from Algorand and then Avalanche and then Cosmos and by the end of it you're confused if, if chains of events or transactions or logs or whatever the language kind of gets lost when we build subquery we build it to be unified and another way that we express that is that the kind of the core way you build a subquery project is identical across these chains so apart from an Algorand subquery project receiving an Algorand block or a Cosmos subquery project receiving a Cosmos block, they're the same thing under the hood, really. We've, as we've added our fourth chain, we now know quite well like what we have to edit for each chain that we support. And we have a pretty good process for how we go about learning about that chain. So we first understand how data is. The main question is, like, how is data expressed in your chain? Um, and how do applications interact with that? In some chain, that's EVM-based smart contracts, and data is kind of expressed in logs and events, and now granted it's transactions. So it's just understanding how that data is stored and expressed. That's the first hard part. We also, when we first build it, we reach out to one or two teams, and we've done this before, to try it out with them in the demo and a beta because we don't know what we don't know. And I think it's really important to, to, to explain. There are like, there are known unknowns. This is when you know that you don't know something. So I don't know exactly what the best RPC provider is. I don't know exactly the roadmap, but I know that I don't know that. But in some cases, when you go to a new chain, there are unknown unknowns. You don't know that I'm completely missing this thing. I don't even know if I might be missing something. 
So reaching out to existing teams in the space, which we did now, grand, and we're welcome with open arms. It was really nice to join the ecosystem. Being support from teams within the ecosystem, but also with foundations, the Our Grand Foundation was also very good as well. Awesome. And I'm sure there would be people listening to this who are already familiar with SubQuery and curious to hear about the next big thing happening and the next things happening in the future roadmap. Is there you can mention on that? What's essentially next for, for SubQuery? What are the next big challenge that you guys are trying to accomplish? Yeah, so we've got three main tactics right now that we're kind of operating under. The first one is we are very close to launching the SubQuery network. It's pretty much ready. Problem is right now is that the market's still a bit, a little bit rough. It's still a lot of people have lost of lot lost a lot of value over the past six months. So right now isn't necessarily the best time to do a public sale, launch a token, and start a network. So we're just adding a few more features, doing a bit more testing before we launch that network, and we are pretty much ready for as soon as the market starts to show signs of recovery. Um, but we're biding our time. Patience is a good one here. In the meantime, though, it's around how do we build a better tool? How do we get more customers by building a better tool? And the way that we've done that, we've had two main tactics. The first one is to add support for more and more chains, growing the addressable market with support for other chains out there that may or may not have other indexes on them. So we're working on that. And we expect to add more chains as we go through this year. The second thing around that, relates to performance. So we know that our customers are always asking us for the best indexer. If we don't build the best tool and the business, then our customers won't use us. So we're not losing sight of how we improve the performance of this, how we add more features, how we make indexing or re-indexing a lot faster. These are key things that we're constantly adding features and iterating and building with. So that's where we're at right now. It's improving the product, it's building the network and it's adding more and more chains. Awesome. Yeah, I would certainly agree with you with the current state of market. It's just too many things going, too many entropy in the world at the moment. There's a lot of chaos in the world right now. Yes. And this chaos is only expanding, unfortunately, every minute. On the closing notes, that's something that is becoming a tradition on the podcast. We usually tend to ask the guests on advices that they could give to aspiring software engineers who would like to try their hands on blockchain development. And of course, in this case, we could just have generic introduction into Web3 space in general, but are there any interesting advices that you may give to engineers who would try to get into Web3 space? Yeah, got two. So the first one is for aspiring young engineers, I think, making into the space. You don't need to be an expert in Rust and Solidity. I think that's the biggest misconception is that if you want to be a blockchain developer, you need to know these really strange languages and you need to kind of be able to, you need to be, able to be a master coder and these kind of things. There are a lot of blockchain teams that are building just regular UIs, right? React front end and just an understanding of the technology and an interest in the technology and understanding the constraints that the technology brings. You can be a pretty good blockchain developer working a really hot blockchain team just by understanding these kind of common languages. So don't feel like you need to go and spend three years under a rock learning Solidity or Rust to get a job in a blockchain company. 
you can you can jump in and kind of learn on the job over time. And a lot of teams are willing to let you learn on the job. As you said, the start, our there are thousands of engineers, but we need thousands more. Anyone that's smart and can learn fast is the main kind of target for blockchain development teams out there. Now, the second bit of advice, and this one's for anyone that's interested in joining blockchain, and it goes back to that's what I was saying at the start of this podcast, is that it's not just software developers that we need. If you are a talented marketer, customer success person, designer, product manager, accountant, there are so many jobs out there that we're not filling as fast as we can, we should be because it looks like it's an impenetrable developer-centric industry. Now, it is in a way, but that is changing over time very slowly and you can be part of that change. So if you, same thing, if you're smart, if you learn on the job, if you can understand blockchain, if you're interested in blockchain, please get involved, get in touch. There are hundreds of jobs out there at the moment, if not thousands. And we need the best and brightest blockchain, a more popular, accessible product, not just a product or a domain for the smartest technical software engineers. Because right now it is, when you think about it. And maybe just as a final additional question on that, what do you think? This could be in the area of speculation, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on what, if we speak about the entire industry, what do you think is the biggest long-term threat to blockchain adoption? Yeah, that's a good question, Al. I don't think it's regulation. I know a lot of people might say regulation. I think governments are kind of putting in place regulation now. They see this as something that's going to keep going and remains as and it's not about how you regulate to stop it. It's about how you regulate to save people or keep, have some kind of safety for consumers. Biggest threat, I think, for blockchain industry as a whole is if we don't manage to build it in a way that it works nicely with existing systems. I think we're at this phase right now where people are interested in it because it's this new thing. But if we don't make it transition it from being a what some people perceive as a gambling situation or an investment platform or just some weird technology that no one knows how to use. People might lose um, interest in it. VCs might lose hope in it. And the, and the, the industry might struggle a lot more. So it's a, we've got this big wave right now. We need to keep the focus on building applications where the next billion users can access it and use it. And building applications that solve real problems for real people around the board, even though they might not look like and this is maybe another issue of blockchain is that it's built by very affluent kind of people around the world. But the people that might benefit the most in blockchain are the people that aren't as lucky as us, the least technical, the least wealthy in these in certain nations where they're not served by a traditional financial system, banking system. They don't have any ability to participate in the centralized systems exactly. like we can. And if we don't keep an eye on, if we don't build for them, which is hard for us because we don't, it's, you know, it's hard to build a product for somebody you can't empathize with as much, then I think that's a threat to blockchain, Web3 as a whole. Excellent remarks, James, on that. And with that, I would like to thank you for coming to the podcast. It's been a great pleasure talking about SubQuery and just to mention to the listeners out there, James was one of the first who actually signed up through the through the forum on the Awesome Algo repository. I believe there was also a pull request that you opened to, to mention the SubQuery there. And for any um, 
creators out there who would like to talk about Web3 and perhaps specifically on Algorand as well, feel free to reach out over that form that is available on the awesomealgo.com. And with that, thank make you sure you list, list your product on that form as well. Make sure you list your product. Or your yeah, make sure to list your application because that's, that's also important. Highlight your um, application. That's uh, I can tell you, after going into four different ecosystems, you always look for an awesome X page in every ecosystem you go to because that's like an instant quick look into all the cool things happening. Yeah. So with that, James, I'm really excited to see what's coming next to SubQuery. I think it certainly sparked my own interest. I will probably do some little open source things with it and we'll see maybe perhaps sometime in the future after the network launch and after the Algorand ecosystem grows a bit and we'll see more applications, we can have another episode and do it a bit more technical next time and some interesting details. Awesome. Thanks, Al. Thank you very much All for right. having me. Thank you for coming.